But the Paraclete, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, uh, here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. The confusion, please God, stops here. Um, Sunday of this week was the Feast of Pentecost, the yearly celebration of the coming of the Holy Ghost on the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Apostles, and the Disciples gathered in the Cenacle, 120 in all, and the coming of the Holy Ghost marks the birthday of the Church. So all Catholics should be uh, especially grateful at this time of the year and um, devoted to the third person of the Blessed Trinity for all that he has done on our behalf. Unfortunately, I think a great many of us take him for granted uh, and kind of conceive of the Holy Ghost as being something sort of added on to uh, the Father and the Son. But uh, the the Holy Ghost is much more important than that. He is, after all, um, God. He is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father and the Son. Now, back during the French Revolution, um, the nuns of the convent of the Vendee did not forget the importance of the Holy Ghost. During the aptly named Reign of Terror, many priests and religious in France were killed. They were put to death, and the entire convent of nuns at the Vendee uh, were condemned to the guillotine. And, of course, all the sisters knew precisely what that meant. But none of them showed any traces of fear, undue concern. They, they gathered together um, at the foot of the scaffold, and as, you know, as they waited to ascend uh, one at a time to, to uh, meet their maker, they raised their voices in song. The, the, the group of them sang, and, and the song that they sang was, Come Holy Ghost. Because for them, the third person of the Trinity was a real person, a, a helper, an advocate, a, a consoling counselor, and not some kind of uh, extra or, or afterthought. So today, we're going to take um, a, I hope, grateful look at the works of the third person of the Blessed Trinity. We, uh, after all, have him to thank for our entrance into the body of Christ. Uh, we have him to thank for the, the purity of Mary and the humanity of Christ. Um, we have him to thank for the Holy Mass and for preserving the Holy Catholic Church from her enemies without and from infidelity within for, well, as of this Pentecost Sunday, 1,988 years, 1,988 years uh, the Church has been around. Now, you might think, okay, sure, that's, that's all well and good, but he, th- th- this list that you've rattled off, he did these things for everyone. You know, what's he done for me lately? You know, for me, for me personally, um, and perhaps you can think of a time when you were doubtful, when you were anxious over some choice, you know, to sin or not to sin, <clears throat> pardon me, to, to, to go to mass or stay in bed, to, to say your uh, nightly rosary or, or to, to skip it for, you know, something on TV or the internet or whatever it might be. And while you were conflicted, perhaps a, a, a gentle whisper sounded deep in your heart to do the right thing. Or maybe you were seized by, by this sudden conviction and just leapt into action seemingly without thinking at all. But whether he came to you in a whisper or, or a compelling motivation, that was the work of the Holy Ghost. And I think in these troubled times, perhaps uh, now more than ever, 
Catholics, and that means you and me, should make the Holy Ghost a part of their lives just as they do the Father and the Son. And just as the nuns uh, at the convent of Vendi, who went to their death singing, Come, Holy Ghost, Creator blessed, and in our hearts take up thy rest. Come with thy grace and heavenly aid to fill the hearts which thou hast made. Now we're also going to look at the person of the Holy Ghost. Uh, We're going to look at sanctifying grace, actual grace, as well as the gifts of the Holy Ghost as they are communicated to us at the Holy Mass. And that's something that uh, you may have never uh, encountered before, this this idea. I'm actually borrowing from a a sermon from this last Pentecost uh, that was uh, put up on 1 Peter 5 from a priest from the Institute of Christ the King and, and what he had to say about it. It's really quite interesting um, the Holy Spirit uh, and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the Book of Revelation all tied together. Now, um, by the way, before we continue, just note bene, you may have already noticed that um, I typically use the term Holy Ghost um, instead of Holy Spirit, uh, particularly in regard to you know the references to the third person of the Blessed Trinity. And I understand that that makes some Catholics uncomfortable. Uh, because the Holy Spirit has become the generic English translation in the Novus Ordo Liturgy, in the modern Catholic Bibles, in uh, catechisms and prayer books and so forth. And if that's you, okay, if you're concerned that, uh, you know, um, the liturgy police are going to knock down your door or something, if you're, if you're worried that Holy Ghost is no longer an official translation of um, Spiritus Sanctus, let me remind you, that the authorized and imprimatured liturgical translations for the extraordinary form of the Mass and the Divine Office, not to mention the, the you know, traditional hymns and prayer books and so forth, all still employ Holy Ghost without scruple and with the Church's approval. And for that matter, uh, the, the hymn, Come Holy Ghost, is still sung uh, at some Novus Ordo liturgies. Okay, so, so don't be afraid of the Holy Ghost. Um, and it's also true that even before Vatican II, you know, Holy Spirit could be found in various Catholic works, um, prayer books, for example. Even the traditional English translation of the Bible, the Dewey Reams, uses um, both terms, Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit. The, the distinction is that uh, in the Douay, Holy Ghost is always used exclusively to refer to the third person of the Blessed Trinity. He's referred to as Holy Spirit sometimes, but Holy Ghost is only ever employed um, when you're referring to um the third person of the Trinity, because the word ghost in English, or geist in German, that's where it it comes from, means the seat of personality or intelligence, and therefore is proper to a person. Whereas spirit, you know, it's sometimes used for the third person, but it also is used to refer to the actions of God. Um, For instance, you will never encounter the term Holy Ghost in the Old Testament, but you find many references to uh, spirit and God's spirit and the, the spirit of God. Because that, that Hebrew word, ruach, which is pneuma in Greek, or spiritus in Latin, means spirit, yes, but it also means breath, and it also means wind. Uh, spirit can even be used as an abstraction. For example, the, the spirit of the age, or the spirit of 76, or team spirit, right? We've got spirit, yes we do, we've got spirit, how about you? And, and while the term Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit have been used somewhat interchangeably for a long time, the generally exclusive use of Holy Spirit to refer to the third person of the Trinity, that didn't start happening until the 20th century. 
and particularly under the influence of so-called higher biblical criticism, which I have a tendency to look at with a jaundiced eye. So, and even then, Holy Ghost was retained in Catholic liturgical prayers, both the Mass and the Divine Office, until the institution of the Novus Ordo in 1970. Now, unfortunately, whether it was intentional or not, this custom has had the effect on many Catholics uh, that they would now conceive of the Holy Ghost as a non-personal force or motivation or gift. But, but the third person, the Blessed Trinity, isn't a force or, or an action, and certainly not an, an abstraction. The Holy Ghost is God. And that's where we're going to start today, with the person of the Holy Ghost, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. Christ spoke of the Holy Ghost, perhaps uh, most solemnly, when he charged the apostles with the Great Commission. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. On certain occasions, um, the Holy Ghost appears in visible form in the Scriptures. And again, I think this is maybe where some people get sidetracked. When Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, the Holy Ghost appeared in the form of a dove. Um, On Pentecost, which we just celebrated this Sunday, the Holy Ghost descended with this mighty uh, rushing wind. And in fact, the word spiritus can mean wind. Uh, And of course, and he, he came to rest on the Blessed Mother and the Apostles and the rest in the form of tongues of fire. And those signs are symbolic of the actions of the Holy Ghost, uh, the, the, the dove symbolizing the, the gentleness with which the, the Spirit works in our souls. And the rush of wind represents the, the strengthening of the will, and, and the flames represent zeal and fervor, and the illumination of the mind. Our minds, of course, darkened by original sin. Uh, also, we know, we, and this is right in the Creed that we recite on Sundays, that the Holy Ghost proceeds from the Father and the Son. But that doesn't mean that he came along after, that the Father and the Son got together and said, you know, what we need to do is, is, you know, uh, get us a Holy Ghost. No. The Holy Spirit represents, uh, within the Godhead, the love between the Father and the Son, but a a love that is a a person, right, that is referred to as He. And, And the Holy Ghost didn't begin to exist at a later time than the Father and the Son. He proceeded from them, yes, but from all eternity. Uh, And the analogy that I've heard used is that he's like the warmth of a fire, you know, uh, um, existing and proceeding at the same time. There can't be any fire without warmth. And if there was an eternal fire, there would be an eternal warmth. So since there are an eternal Father and Son, there is an eternal Holy Ghost. He is the eternal mutual love of the Father and the Son, but more than a mere feeling, he is a person, a being. He is, in a word, God. The Holy Ghost is equal to the Father and the Son because he is God. True God, as the Father and the Son are. The Holy Ghost is eternal and all-knowing and almighty. He's called Holy Spirit from the Latin word spiritus, which means breath, because he breathed forth or was breathed forth by the Father and Son. We also call him the Holy Ghost and other names of advocate and paraclete, consoler, comforter, etc. And we're going to get into that and lots more when we come back um, with this special edition, what every Catholic needs to know about the Holy Ghost, right here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We'll be back after these messages. Stick with us. 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, talking about what every Catholic needs to know about the Holy Ghost. Now, there was a flapdoodle, as I recall, a, a number of years ago down in Australia uh, when Cardinal Pell was still um, ministering down there. And there was a priest that had been baptizing people, apparently for years, in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier. And as it, you know, of course, when this was discovered, um, there was a lot of damage control to do because uh, those baptisms were not valid, nor were any of the sacraments that were received after those invalid baptisms. And so, you know, the situation had to be corrected because creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, those are the things, those are the things that the, the persons of the Trinity do. That's not who they are. They are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And all of the divine works uh, depend on all three persons. We only attribute creation to the Father and redemption to the Son uh, and uh, sanctification to the Holy Ghost by analogy. But we do, you know, we attribute uh, um, the work of sanctification to God the Holy Ghost because he is the oneness of love of the Father and Son. And the sanctification of, of man by grace reveals that love. Um, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And after baptism, we have the Holy Ghost in our hearts and he remains there so long as uh, we don't have any mortal sin on our soul. This is the gift of sanctifying grace, which we're going to talk about in more detail in a minute. You know, and when we say that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we should treat our body with, uh, with great reverence, because it is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Ghost is given us in, in a special manner in baptism and in confirmation and in the sacrament of holy orders. He is the source of life for the church. He consoles, guides, uh, he imparts strength to the church, as Christ promised. The, the church, it says in Acts uh, 3, 9.31, uh, was filled with the consolation of the Holy Ghost. And uh, he's, Jesus says in John's Gospel, chapter 16, many things yet I have to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will teach you all the truth. And that first dwelling of the Holy Ghost in the church was visibly manifested um, for the first time at Pentecost, when he came down on the apostles uh, and the Blessed Virgin and the others in the form of tongues of fire. After the ascension of the Lord, the apostles gathered together with the Blessed Virgin, the disciples, about 120 persons in all, gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem, where they spent the time in prayer, waiting for the fulfillment of Christ's promise. That's Acts 1.14. But wait here in the city, our Lord said in Luke 24.49, until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus at the Last Supper had promised to send um, the Holy Ghost to the apostles. He said in John 16, 7, It's expedient for you that I depart, for if I do not go, the Advocate will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And on Pentecost, ten days after the Ascension, pardon me, the Holy Ghost descended on the Apostles and the disciples, and they went out to preach. 3,000 people, as you know, were baptized after the preaching of St. Peter. And many believed because the Apostles had from the Spirit the gift of tongues. Which is to say that they, you know, they spoke. I mean, most theologians, I think, these days would suggest that they spoke in their own language. They were speaking Greek or Aramaic or whatever, 
Uh, but the, the, those who listened to them, all, all different races, all different nationalities, uh, understood them in their own different languages. They heard them in their different languages. And so we celebrate the descent of the Holy Ghost on Pentecost Sunday, which is 10 days after Ascension Thursday, uh, 50 days after Easter. Pentecost, in fact, means 50. And Pentecost was a, a, a Jewish celebration. It was originally uh, celebrated as the anniversary of um, God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. So you have that imparting of the, of the law to Moses. Now you have this imparting of the Spirit to the church. And, of course, that nine days from the Ascension to uh, the Eve of Pentecost that uh, was spent in prayer by the disciples while they were waiting for the Holy Ghost was the first novena of the church, nine days of prayer. And so, you know, we have uh, the custom of making the novena to the Holy Ghost before um, before Pentecost. And also um, we have, you know, I, people make novenas all through the year, but very often before great feasts, uh, you know, in remembrance of this custom. Also, on the eve of Pentecost, it is the custom to bless the baptismal font. And uh, um, in remembrance of, you know, and because people are being received into the church and so for being confirmed. And this year had a very special significance for, you know, my parish church because it was on the Feast of Pentecost. I walked into the church, I almost teared up because there was holy water in the holy, in the, in the fonts. The fonts were back on the walls and, and, and the, the big font in the front of the church was filled with, uh, with holy water. And, you know, such a nice uh, uh, return to normalcy. Now, how long is the Holy Ghost going to dwell in the church if, if, the, if the Holy Spirit is like the, the, the soul of the church? Um, uh, how long will he dwell? Well, Jesus said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to dwell with you forever the Spirit of Truth. So the Holy Ghost will be with the church um, until the end, right, for all time. He watches over the church, protecting it from destruction. And of course, it was at the beginning of the church that um, it spread so very rapidly. You know, at the, at the death of the apostles, in spite of all the persecutions and the fact that they were all martyred, save John, although he suffered and, and was very much persecuted, um, by the by, the death of those last apostles, the the uh, faith had already spread throughout what was then the civilized world. It had already spread to the ends of the earth. And and Saint Paul could say in Romans uh, chapter ten verse eighteen, indeed their voice has gone forth into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And it was the Holy Ghost giving testimony to Christ, and strengthening the apostles to give testimony to Christ. Okay, um, our Lord said, when the Advocate has come, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness concerning me, and you also bear witness. It's John 15, 26 and 27. And in the book of Acts, by his descent, the Holy Ghost proved that all Jesus Christ had said and done was true, and that he was indeed the Son of God. After coming the coming of the Holy Ghost, the apostles gave testimony of Christ going over all over the world and in preaching and suffering for Christ, meeting death joyfully as we read about in Acts 5 and Romans 8, 18, saying, I can do all things in him who strengthens me. And that strength comes to us from being in the state of sanctifying grace. 
Now, grace, of course, is uh, a gift. It's a supernatural gift of God that's bestowed on us through the merits of Jesus Christ and for our salvation. And I mean, I mean, you've probably been taught this since you were a little kid, but it bears repeating. Grace is a favor. It's a free gift. Um, um, it's granted to us even though we have no claim to it. We have no right to it. God grants us graces because he's good, not because we deserve them. And God grants us graces for the sake of his son, who died on the cross to earn those graces. And, you know, this is the thing. People sometimes accuse the, the Catholic Church of thinking they can work their way to heaven and so forth. The, the we, church teaches that or we believe it. But no, we know that man can never merit these graces. It's, you know, Paul in Romans uh, 3, all have sinned and, and have need of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ. But it is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, that dispenses these graces that God merited uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ. He bestows and perfects on us what is already earned by him as and acts as channels of grace. Uh, it's in a similar way, uh, you might think that the, of the, uh, the sun and, and the, the growing things of the earth, the plants. The sun doesn't make the plants, right? <laughs> Grace doesn't make us, but it develops. The sun develops what is already planted. Without the sun, the plants would die and be useless. And very much the, the same with us, okay? The supernatural is, you know, means what's beyond natural power, obviously. And it's of two kinds. Um, when a fact is beyond natural powers in a manner of occurrence, right? So a, a blind person instantly regains his sight. Okay, that's, that's supernatural. Or, or when the fact fundamentally and entirely surpasses all powers of the natural order. Like when God imparts his life to man through the gift of sanctifying grace. Okay, that is also supernatural. And the assistance of the Holy Ghost is also necessary. Um, without the help of the graces that he dispenses with our merely natural powers, we can't do the least thing to merit our salvation. Without God, as our Lord says, without me, you can do nothing. So in order to reach heaven, we need God's grace. And so we say with the apostle, not that we're sufficient of ourselves to think anything as from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. By the grace of God, he says, I am what I am. I've labored more than any of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Right? Paul realizes that it's not his efforts that are winning souls, but it's the Holy Spirit working through him. Now, there's two kinds of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. And sanctifying grace, that's, that is the grace that confers on us, uh, on our souls, the new life sharing in the life of God himself, right? And this is what happens at baptism. By sanctifying grace, our souls are made holy and pleasing to God. It is an abiding grace. It is a permanent grace so long as we do not fall into mortal sin. See, through, through the sin of Adam, as you know, all mankind lost the friendship of God, and so we were born into original sin, right? Because Adam didn't possess it to pass it on. And our Lord's death, though, won back that sanctifying grace for us, right? Everyone was redeemed. But to, to accept that grace, which is granted freely, that happens at baptism. 
And a soul that God grants that grace receives, it's not just a gift from God, it's God himself. Because the Holy Ghost comes and lives in him and becomes united with him. So we, we really receive a new life. We really have a new nature. And this is quite miraculous. I think, you know, we, we, we don't maybe understand it that way because we're, we're so um, familiar with the concept. But think of what St. Paul said. He refers to that, to sanctifying grace as putting off the old man and putting on the new. Right? It's, it's, it's as if an old man was suddenly made young and handsome, you know, full of the vigor of life. And, and the beauty of, a, of a, a soul in the state of sanctifying grace is, you know, it would be too great for human eyes to bear. And, you know, the, the ugliness in God's sight of a soul in mortal sin would keep us from ever uh, wanting to fall into that sorry state. Hence, uh, Terry and Jesse always ending their show. What state should we be living in? A state of grace. Okay, talk about more about this and about actual graces and the gifts of the Holy Ghost as they are communicated in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. All that and more when we come back. No Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking about sanctifying grace. We're talking about what every Catholic needs to know about the Holy Ghost. And we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Spirit and how they are actually communicated, not only at the Sacrament of Confirmation, but at every Mass. That Mass uh, is not only Calvary. Every Mass is Calvary, we know that. But every Mass is Pentecost as well. We're going to talk about that uh, in our next segment. But right now, talking about sanctifying grace. And there are four chief effects of the sanctifying grace. First, you know, your old Baltimore Catechism makes us holy and pleasing to God. Um, When we're in the possession of sanctifying grace, that means that you're free from mortal sin and the Holy Ghost dwells within you. Um, Because the two, those, those two things cannot go together, right? You can't have the state of grace and mortal sin. Uh, There are two different states. And, uh, it's also well to remember that while we are, when we are free from mortal sin and <clears throat> we have the sanctifying grace, we are not freed from the effects of original sin. We still suffer from a darkened intellect and a weakened will. But um, because we're in the state of grace, we can do works that are meritorious for salvation. And uh, um, sanctifying grace although it doesn't cure us, cure us of the weakness of the flesh, it does strengthen our will. Uh, so that, we, the, you know, for us, that, that war be against sin, that battle that we're uh, struggling against every day, becomes, uh, we become more victorious. It's easier to triumph over sin. And the, the charity that accompanies sanctifying grace makes us more prone to do good works, makes us more attracted to God and to the things of God because it illumines our mind illuminates our mind, uh, not only to things of God, but also to the stupidity of sin. So that's first. Uh, Number two, uh, sanctifying grace makes us the adopted children of God. With sanctifying grace, the Holy Ghost enters into the soul, and we are led by his Spirit, and we are therefore his children. St. Paul says, Romans 8.14, For whoever are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
Now you have not received a spirit of bondage, so as to be again in fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by virtue of which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself gives testimony to our spirit that we are sons of God. Right? That's Romans eight fifteen and 16. Uh, third, sanctifying, chief effect of sanctifying grace. It makes us temples of the Holy Ghost. So sanctifying grace brings the Holy Ghost to dwell in us as in a temple. St. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, 16, for you are the temple of the living God. And let me see here. Um, Fourth, it gives us the right to heaven. When we are in a state of sanctifying grace, we are inspired to do good works. The Holy Ghost does not sleep within us, but expands our heart with his grace. That's the, the, I I can't really, this is where the rubber meets the road. Because as adopted children of God, um, such actions will become meritorious uh, for us, for our salvation, for heaven. Uh, That's what St. Paul says in the next two verses of Romans 8. He says, if we are children of God, we are at the same time heirs, and therefore have a right to his kingdom. We are the sons of God, but if we are sons, we are heirs also, heirs indeed of God and joint heirs with Christ. If we're the children of God the Father, we're the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ and co-heirs to his kingdom. And so sanctifying grace is necessary for salvation because you can't gain any merit for heaven as long as you're not in that state of sanctifying grace. If you're not in a state of grace, if you're in a state of sin, and then you are an enemy of God and you uh, cannot enter his kingdom. So sanctifying grace, extremely important. But I said there are two kinds of grace, sanctifying grace and actual grace. And the poster boy for actual grace must be Saul of Tarsus. And we know the story from the book of Acts that Saul of Tarsus, um, he was one of the most active persecutors of the early church. And he was on his way to Damascus to arrest the Christians there when he was struck by this brilliant light. He saw the light. He was knocked off his high horse. We have all of these great uh, expressions that come from this episode in the scriptures. He's caught by this brilliant light. He hears the voice telling him or asking him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he asked, who who art thou, Lord? And Jesus answered, I am Jesus, whom thou art persecuting. And Saul immediately grasped at that grace. And he asked, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And he turned his back on his former life and he uh, uh, um, belonged completely to Christ. And Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christians, became the apostle Paul, who uh, was this incomparable um, apostle of the faith until his martyrdom in Rome. So that was an instance. uh, Saul of Tarsus was not in a state of sanctifying grace, right? He was in a state of mortal sin. And yet God's grace came to him like a bolt from the blue. That was actual grace. Actual grace, it's the supernatural help of God that enlightens our mind and strengthens our will to do what's good and to avoid what is evil. So by actual grace, I mean, the Holy Spirit shows us the empty, 
nature, the emptiness of earthly things. Helps us to see our own sins. Uh, Helps us to see the true goal of life is the life to come. And through uh, or by actual grace, we can perform uh, a virtuous act or reject a temptation. That's what I was talking about in the first segment. So actual grace is uh, is transient. It, it's it's given to us for for uh, you know a, a particular need uh, to perform some good act to overcome a temptation, like we were saying. An example of the of the action of the Holy Ghost is the enlightening of the mind of the. Uh, and strengthening of the will of the, at the first Pentecost, right? Before the descent of the Holy Ghost, the apostles were gathered together in fear of the Jews, as the Bible says, in the upper room. Uh, they, they were ignorant and afraid. And after the descent of the Holy Spirit, his grace made them wise and fearless. He gave them all those gifts uh, of the Spirit that we're going to talk about in, in the next segment and made them wise and, and, and unafraid to preach and to go everywhere and to be ready to die for the faith. These same fellows who, who were cowering in fear. Now, God always gives us sufficient grace to be saved. And I think as Catholics, we should really view our whole life um, in light of grace, because all of God's gifts that are granted for our salvation are graces, and that's everything in your life. So that means that, you know, uh, a good family, uh, a good education, um, sickness, hardship, all of these things are graces, God's graces, and can be the steps by which we ascend to heaven. Uh, God grants graces to protect us against uh, temptation. God never suffers us to be tempted beyond our strength so long as we're cooperating with his grace. If we do our part and avoid the occasion of sin and cooperate with his graces, we will win that crown of victory. We will be saved and go to heaven. And so everyone who has attained the use of reason needs actual graces. Because, you know, without that actual grace, we're never going to be able to uh, um, overcome the power of temptation or perform acts that, that, you know, uh, uh, merit a reward in heaven. Sinners need actual grace to arise from sin. Uh, The just need it to persevere in good works because without grace, we're in the danger of falling back into sin. Think um, Think of Herod when the three wise men came to say, you know, where we came to ask where is born the, the king of the Jews. He was offered a grace. He knew that the, that the birth of the Messiah had been prophesied, and now he's being told it, it's, it's actually happened. But he rejected that grace, didn't he? he, he, he the slaughter of the innocents. He, this, this wonderful uh, offer of grace, which could have been to his salvation, just added to his sins instead. So we've got to cooperate. Uh, also, grace is given to everyone, but not in equal amounts. I think this is, again, you know, in our, in our uh, egalitarian society, sometimes we have to wrap our heads around that. Some people get more grace than others. Some extraordinary graces uh, um, uh, are only granted to chosen people. That ordinary graces are granted to everyone. Like I said, everybody gets the, the grace necessary for salvation. But God is free 
uh, to bestow his gifts as uh, according to his goodwill. He's free to grant extraordinary graces to certain chosen souls. Think of the Blessed Virgin Mary obviously received more graces than anyone before or since. Um, Christians receive more graces than pagans do. Those who are in a state of grace are, are likely to receive more than, <laughs> graces than those in the state of mortal sin. Um, you know, so in a way, graces, um, our graces personally depend on our disposition. Because if we're faithful and corresponding to those graces that we receive, um, and we're going to get them, we're going to receive them more abundantly. And, you know, uh, um, often I think our carelessness and our indifference um, is what causes us to turn away from his graces. You know, we reject him, uh, who, <laughs> reject God, whose only desire is that we become saints, that, that he would give us the help to become saints. The God who, according to Proverbs, whose only delight is to be with the children of men. Okay? And we should be turning towards him. And the principal ways of obtaining grace are prayer and the Holy Sacraments, and uh, especially the Holy Eucharist. Because the sacraments of baptism and penance give grace to those who don't possess it, right? You, the initial grace, and after, if you fall into sin after baptism. And the, the Holy Eucharist gives us not only God's grace, but God himself, body, blood, soul, and divinity. All right, I'm going to come back and talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the seven traditional gifts of the Holy Spirit that we associate with confirmation and how they're communicated at each and every holy sacrifice of the Mass. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I know that um, a lot of the listeners to this program uh, have been faithful supporters of St. Joseph Communications and Catholic Resource Center, uh, some for decades. And if that's you, you are very likely familiar, and, it, and certainly if you're familiar with my work, uh, uh, like when I did the show Scripture Matters with Dr. Scott Hahn, you are going to be uh, familiar with his book, The Lamb's Supper, the Mass as Heaven on Earth. And what Scott did, and it really got, you know, I mean, it was uh, so important in the lives of so many Catholics, was he rediscovered the Church's tradition that the key to understanding the mysteries of the Mass are contained in the Apocalypse, or the Book of Revelation. You know, all that mystical visions and, and end times prophecies and so forth. Revelation mirrors the sacrifice and celebration of the Holy Eucharist. Furthermore, Scott says that when we assist at Holy Mass, uh, as the name of the book implies, we participate in that heavenly liturgy. And that the Mass is, in the words of St. John Paul II, heaven on earth. Now, this Pentecost Sunday, um, a priest uh, by the name of Canon Ator Mateus, he's a priest of the Institute of Christ the King, and he's a uh, um, preaches sermon at St. Mary's Oratory in Wausau, Wisconsin. And you can read this. It's called The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass and the Communication of the Seven Gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's on the 1 Peter 5 website, and it's worth your time to read the whole thing. But he started off, you know, he picked up this theme, um, and he started off with um, verse 6 of chapter 5 of the book of Revelation, where St. John says, And I saw, and behold, in the midst of the throne, 
and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the ancients, a lamb standing, as it were, slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he explained how this verse, in, in mystical terms, um, describes the mystery of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So first, the throne. In chapters 8 and 9 of the Apocalypse, we learn that before the throne of God, there is an altar. Uh, 8.3 says, Another angel came and stood before the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given to him much incense, that he should offer the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne of God. So the throne of God and the altar, they're like two sides of the same reality, one visible and one invisible. So the throne of God is the invisible reality behind the liturgy. And every time the priest ascends the steps to the altar, the door of heaven is opened, like it says in Revelation 4.1. And we are placed before the throne of God. The throne of God and the altar of sacrifice are united. The altar is the visible part of the throne. The throne is the invisible part of the altar. Next, John sees the, the four living creatures, a man, a lion, an ox, and an eagle. And they symbolize the four evangelists. St. Matthew is the man because his gospel starts with the genealogy, the, the human lineage, uh, lineage rather, of our Lord. St. Mark is the lion because his gospel begins with the, the preaching in the wilderness, you know, the call in the desert. St. Luke is signified as the ox because his gospel starts in the temple, which is the place of sacrifice. And then the eagle symbolizes St. John, uh, whose gospel begins with that magnificent declaration of the divinity uh, of Christ. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, uh, soaring, uh, you know, metaphorically and and theologically speaking, uh, uh, higher than the other evangelists, just as the eagle uh, higher than other birds. So the four Gospels, and by extension, uh, the New Testament. At the same time, he sees the ancients, which symbolizes the patriarchs and the prophets of the Old Testament. So the throne, the altar, the, the, the New Testament, the Old Testament, which are read during the Mass. And now the center of the vision, on the center of the altar, the Lamb, standing as it were slain. He's said to be standing because he's alive. But at the same time, he, has, he is, as it were, slain because he's in, in the state of immolation. And we know who this Lamb is. It's our Lord. Uh, who in his humanity became the victim of the sacrifice of propitiation for the sins of the whole world. And here you see that the sacrifices of the old law were a prefiguration of the great sacrifice, uh, the reality which was announced from the beginning, that the Lamb of God was physically sacrificed on the cross, but after his death he came back to life. So the Lamb who was dead is alive now and forever. All of this is familiar to us, um, or would be familiar to you if you've read Scott Hahn's Last Supper. What Father Matthias, though, did next was, for me, uh, no pun intended, a revelation. Because he says that St. John, you know, describes the lamb as having seven horns and seven eyes, which obviously must have a symbolic meaning because it would be, you know, grotesque uh, otherwise. And the seven horns symbolize the fullness of power. Horns symbolize power, seven completeness. And then the seven eyes, he says, represent the seven spirits of God that are sent forth into all the earth. And these seven spirits of God are, in fact, the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost. And the Lamb of God communicates these gifts to us also during the holy sacrifice of the Mass. How so, pray tell? Well, Father Matthias says, during the holy sacrifice, from the introit to the final blessing, 
The priest gives seven mystical salutations to the faithful. Seven times, Dominus Vobiscum, et cum spiritu tuo. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. And that intends to communicate at each greeting by the will of God a gift of the Holy Spirit. And here's how he breaks it down. He says that first salutation, the first mystical salutation, takes place right before the collect, right, the opening prayer, and communicates the spirit of wisdom. He says it happens before the prayer because the gift of wisdom teaches us what to ask from God. The second mystical salutation before the gospel communicates the spirit of understanding so that we can understand the word of God in its fullness and put it into practice. The third mystical salutation takes place before the offertory, right, the presentation of the gifts, and communicates the spirit of counsel so that we may discern the will of God that he may be asking us to offer to him. The fourth mystical salutation takes place before the preface and communicates the spirit of fortitude so that we can be strong enough to follow the Lamb of God in the way of the cross and strong enough to accomplish all the sacrifices that God might require from us. The fifth mystical salutation takes place before the Agnus Dei and communicates the spirit of knowledge so we may realize the vanity of all the things in this world and not be attached to anything which is not eternal, which is the only way, of course, to have peace. And that is why this one salutation, rather than saying Dominus Vobiscum, the priest says, Pax Domini, set semper Vobiscum, the the peace of our Lord be with you always. And then the sixth mystical salutation takes place right after Holy Communion and communicates the spirit of piety that spirit of filial love and devotion uh, towards God, especially in the Blessed Sacrament. And then the seventh mystical salutation takes place before the final blessing and communicates the fear of the Lord, the Holy Spirit of fear, so that we can respect God, right? This, this is a gift of justice. You know, we owe, we owe uh, justice about what we owe to people, to, uh, our, to our neighbor, we, you know... Uh, uh, Oh, brotherly love, and we owe uh, obedience to our superiors and, and uh, rewards and punishments to our inferiors. But to God alone, we owe worship and adoration. Okay, this is the, that fear of the Lord, to respect him so that we can run away from sin and do what is right, so that we, you know, uh, our, our efforts are to please him and not the world. And then the final blessing seals all of those spiritual gifts that we've received in us. And this is just such a, a beautiful way to look at this. He says, and I'm quoting now, My brethren, we can see the realization of that verse of the book of the Apocalypse in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In the Holy Sacrifice, we receive the flesh of the Lamb of God, who was sacrificed for our salvation. But we cannot forget that in the Holy Sacrifice, we also receive the communication of the Holy Spirit, the seven gifts. Every Mass is Calvary, but it is also Pentecost. So next time we're present at Mass, let's be attentive when the priest says, Dominus Vobiscum, or the Lord be with you, because these are mystical salutation, uh, salutations which intend to communicate graces from God. And let the faithful, he says, respond to those salutations with true charity, wishing the same graces to the priest, as we say, and with your spirit. Okay, the gifts uh, of the Holy Spirit then, which are enumerated 
in the book of Isaiah the prophet. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. Now, there are some of, um, you know, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, they help us, um, you know, as Father enumerated, he told us what, what all of the different things do. And, and if we look at, at the, with a discerning eye, we can see how the gifts of the Holy Ghost have greatly helped the world at large. As, as the psalmist sang back in the Old Testament, in uh, Psalm 103, Thou shalt send forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. That's the, the uh, antiphon that we uh, pray in the Come Holy Spirit prayer. Uh, uh, and St. Paul says in Romans, And hope does not disappoint, because the charity of God is poured forth in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So um, we have the, these gifts, but then we have the effects of the gifts of the Holy Ghost. And some of those effects are um, the, fruits of the, the fruits of the Holy Ghost, which I'll tell you in a minute, and also the Beatitudes, which we've spoken of uh, so very often on this program, um, effects of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the 12 fruits of the Holy Spirit are charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, which is uh, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, mildness, faith, modesty, continency, and chastity. So these, these 12 fruits of the Holy Ghost, they, they're, they're good habits that are performed you know, with his gift of grace under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And these are the actions that are going to make us happy and contented and help us to be pleasing to God and to each other, for that matter. With the fruits of the Holy Ghost, it becomes easier to persevere uh, in the union with God and the practice of virtue. And our heart inclines uh, with charity towards God and neighbor and finds it almost natural to be detached from the world. That's um, the effect of um, accepting the grace of the gifts of the Holy Ghost and then forming these good habits. With the gift of sanctifying grace and the theological virtues, the gifts of the Holy Ghost, the Christian soul may be said to possess sanctity. And that is the key to Christian perfection. That is the universal call to holiness to which we are all called. And that's no nonsense. All right. I hope that you've enjoyed this uh, little examination of the uh, what every Catholic needs to know about the Holy Ghost. Look forward to uh, doing it all again next time. In the meantime, I want to say thank you so much for your support of Virgin Most Powerful Radio, your prayers, which we need uh, more than ever every day, and also also your financial support as well. You can do that at vmpr.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.